You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. When I was a kid, there was a popular clothing brand uh, called No Fear. I don't know if you remember that, um, that when, you know, I was probably middle school or so when it became popular. The concept behind the brand was promoting a mindset of taking risks, that I'm, I'm not afraid of anything, no fear, you can't tell me there's something to be afraid of, I have no fear. And, and I'm all about stretching yourself instead of settling, but I've discovered that teenagers don't need encouragement to take unnecessary risks. Last night, my son, Jace, he's six, you know, he was standing at, we have a split-level home, and he was standing at the, the top of the bottom half of the steps and jumping all the way down, and I, and my, and Brother Pyle and I were looking at him like, man, that hurts my knees just watching him do it. I remember when I was a kid, we had a, a tree house, a fort up in the top of this tree at my friend's house, and it had to be 12 feet or so off the ground, and we would just jump off of it onto the ground like it was no big deal. And I've discovered that young people, especially teenagers, they don't need to be encouraged to take those kind of risks. I I remember guys my age when I was young and the no fear thing came out doing crazy things like jumping between buildings and and getting on top of their trucks and and driving down the street. They called it truck surfing. And, you know, that trend has evolved to the point now that young people record themselves doing extremely idiotic things and then post the videos to YouTube. So it's, it's like as if it's not enough to be dumb and keep it to yourself. Now they want the whole world to know. So they, they climb up cell phone towers and hang off with one hand and they, they jump between buildings and they, they jump off hotel roofs into swimming pools. You know, a healthy dose of fear can be a good thing. I mean, it can protect you from things that that you would do otherwise. A a healthy dose of fear can protect yourself spiritually. It's good. But as I was reading 1 John 4 this week, I realized that fear, as good as fear can be on a physical level, fear in the spiritual realm is a limitation. John writes that if love does what love should do in the life of a child of God, it will actually eliminate fear. And and so we begin another message today based on the concept of love as a family trait, as we've been talking about the last few months. But today's message is less about how to love because we've been on love for a few weeks now. And and I know you're probably thinking, when are we going to be done with this? But, But really, it's the most important trait. It's the one trait that separates us the most from everyone else. We, we can't hear enough about it. But today's message is less about how to love, and it's more about the effect that genuine love has on our lives. The result of love's work in us? No fear. When love does the work in us it's supposed to, then Christians should be the ones wearing the shirts that say, no fear. And we'll look, about, we'll look at that, how, how that works, but the concept of this passage, it all begins with God's love. So I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of review as we come into this, but 
God's love produces perfected love in us. God's love to us produces perfected love in us. It all starts with God's love. Look at verse 16. He says, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. It all starts with God. It all starts with God's love. Our assurance, our confidence, our faith begins with what God has done for us in love. Now, John's language is sure when he says in verse 16, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. We have known, he says. We have have believed, he says. What have we known? What have we believed? Well, that God is love. Think of all the ways that God has undeniably proved his love from the beginning. He loved mankind so much that he promised a Savior in the Garden of Eden right after Adam and Eve sinned. That Savior was was thought of and promised before the foundation of the world. That's how much he loves us. He loves us so much that he even threw, even though the world turned their backs on him, and just in Genesis 7, the whole world had turned from God, and yet he loves mankind so much that even in a flood, in which we could relate to this week, But even in a flood, God preserved mankind through Noah and his family. He wasn't ready just to write off humanity. He loves mankind so much that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to be born in a human body, grow up in a carpenter's home, be despised and rejected by just about everyone, and then die on a cross as the substitute for every person that has ever lived. He loves us so much that he doesn't cut us off every time we sin. And I think about his love when I think about 1 John 1, 9 and that he allows me to confess my sin when I sin. He allows me to confess it and be restored to him. He loves us so much that he wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to confess our sins and, and that we can continue that relationship until we get to heaven. And he, he loves his children so much that he gives us every good and perfect gift, the Bible says, in order to provide for our needs. And I just want to set the table today with the fact that the tablecloth on the table this morning is that God loves us. I don't have to spend much time to prove it to you, but if you've ever doubted God's love, just look at the evidence. And I know a lot of people would say, if God loves me, why would this happen? If God loves me, why would these things happen? Why would I be raised here? Why would somebody do this to me? But listen, I have to tell you this morning, the worst things that happen in our lives are not a result of God not loving you. They are the result of the effects of sin in this world. And sin was a human choice. It breaks everything and it breaks us. Sin is what causes the heartache and despair. It is sin which brings death, according to Romans 6.23. Because of sin, God and man are at odds. He is sinless and holy and we are certainly not. But I want you to think even that thought leads to further proof of God's love because even though we're sinners and even though we're broken, God loves us so much. That the Bible says in Romans 5 that he has shed abroad his love in our hearts. And as we've already heard, seen in this series, God enables us to love others like God loves us. Well, you talk about a miracle. That God could look at this broken sinner with this human nature that I have and this sin nature that I have and give me the ability to give me the capacity to love somebody else like he loves me. That's a miracle. That he could take that unconditional selfless love that only seeks my best 
and put it in me. God loves us. And I could stop today and that could be the, the message. I mean, God's proof of love, it, it, it is everything to us. And it, it's where our assurance starts. What God's love produces in us, also though, it strengthens our assurance. See, we have God's love that kind of sets the table, covers the table with the tablecloth. But then we have on top of the tablecloth, we have what God's love does through us. So God's love is on the table and then the dishes, the things that you can see and start to use are the evidence of God's love through us. Love perfected is what we talked about last week. And the way that I said it was it's love lived out. See, we can't see God, but God dwells in us and can show the world and we can show the world who is God by how we love other people. Love perfected means love brought to its end goal. We can live out God's love at home. We can live out God's love at work. We can live out God's love to the lost in our interactions with each other. Love perfected, love lived out is when God's love works in us and it's seen as we live it out in our lives. So our assurance in our position in the family is strengthened because love lived out is the evidence that God dwells in. So that's kind of the review that this whole thought process in 1 John, it begins with God's love. And God's love strengthens our faith because we know what he's done for us. And our faith is not just strengthened in that way. Our faith is strengthened not just in that God loves us and what he's done for us, but also then as we look at our, the evidence in our lives and we live out, it's further, even further strengthened. So it all starts with God's love. God's love is the basis for everything we're talking about here in this passage. The result is assurance and a strengthening of our faith. So God's love does something in us. It gives us perfected love or the ability to have love that's fulfilled or filled out. But second, perfected love in us. Here's where we start to get into our text. Perfected love in us gives us confidence about our future. Perfected love in us gives us confidence about our future. Here's how. God has already proven his love. We already read in verse 16, we've known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. We've already talked about the many ways God has proven his love. Just think about the ways God has proven his love in our text right here. Look at verse 9 up in chapter 4. And previously it says in verse 9, and this was manifested, the love of God toward us, Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. There's a proof of God's love right there. Look at verse 10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God sent his son to be the payment for our sins on the cross. Look at verse 14. And we have seen and do testify that the father sent the son to be the savior of the world. God sent Jesus Christ not just to save the people in this room. It says that he came to save the whole world. It's good for us to believe what the Bible says and believe that Jesus Christ didn't just die for a select number of people. He died for the whole world. Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth or proved, God commendeth or proved his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's no doubt that God loves us. So knowing he loves us, since he's already proven it in the past, it changes the way we think about the future. Think about that again. 
because of the way God has proven his love to us in the past, it starts to, it affects the way that we think about our future. It's kind of like, and Brother Pyle this morning in Sunday school was talking about football. It's football season. Forgive me if I have a lot of football analogies. I like football, and, and I think around here I've already seen plenty of evidence that you like football too. By the way, Jackrabbits, what a great, what a great mascot, okay? <laughs> Strikes fear in every f- of opposing football team. No, I love it. I actually do. I'm Jackrabbits, go Jacks. So, I'm a football fan. I like it. You know, and leading up to the season... Uh, and I don't watch much uh, on SportsCenter or anything like that. I listen to a little bit of the radio. But, you know, you have all of these experts, these pundits. They get on there and they start talking about what the season is going to be like. And they start saying, well, this team is going to do this and they're going to do this. And they'll have this kind of success. And, and they'll play this way and this offense. And, you know, they, they're, the fools get on there and make statements about things that, that, that uh, they haven't studied. But the ones that, that can anticipate what's happening, they've done their research. The reason that they can make some pretty good uh, qualifiers or, or that they can kind of prog- uh, just tell what's happening next is because they, of what the evidence has been in the past. Uh, for instance, the team was good in a certain area last year and they've gotten different players or better players this year, um, then you can tell, based on what's happened in the past, that they're going to be better in the future. Or if a, if a certain team got a, a new player in, and, and, and that player is a, supposedly a good receiver or a new quarterback, then they can tell what's going to happen this season based on what's happened in the past. If you're a fan of a team that's proven to be consistently good, then you go into a season with confidence. But if your team has proven to be inconsistent or just plain bad, which most of us root for some teams that are bad, you don't feel very settled about the outcome. What I'm saying is, is that your feeling about the future or your assurance or security in the future is based on what you've seen in the past. It happens in other areas too. Like, like most people, we've had good and bad vehicles. And when you drive a, a, a vehicle that that is a good vehicle, if I drive a vehicle that's never given me problems, then I just drive and I don't worry about it. I mean, I don't get in the vehicle and think about, I'm cutting out here. I, I don't get in the vehicle and, and worry about the pulpit. We're having some issues with the mic. Um, I don't get in the vehicle and worry if it's going to start. I don't get in the vehicle and, and think, oh boy, I hope this happens. Now, if, if, if a vehicle has a good track record, then I don't worry about it. Now, on the other hand, I've driven some bad vehicles. And when I get in, every time I get in a vehicle and I think, is it going to start this time? Or I'm driving down the road and the whole time I have anxiety and, I, and I, I'm fretful about it. But listen, with God, what you just to think about with God, His love has been so reliable that we have no reason to doubt that he won't come through in our biggest moments. You have a health need, you have a health trial, or some unforeseen financial struggle. You have an issue in a relationship with someone else in your life. Listen, when you don't have answers, and you need, you need somebody who wants your best, God's love has proven itself to be sufficient for whatever moment is around your corner. 
What moment does John bring up here? Well, only the biggest moment of your life. The day of judgment. He says uh, in, in verse 17, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. See, listen, one day you will stand before God by yourself and you will answer for your life. We will each take turns standing there by ourselves with nobody else. And if you don't get any other part of the message, I want you to hear it now. Try to focus in and give your mind to this. Uh, You will stand by yourself and give account of yourself to God. Romans 14 verse 12 says, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Each of us will stand before God and be inspected. We will have to give an account of our lives to God. Hebrews 9, 27 says, And it is as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Those in Christ or in the family will stand before him at the judgment seat. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one of us may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. You will stand before God, child of God, family member, you will be inspected. You will give an account. You will stand there with no one to speak on your behalf or answer to God for you. There will be no excuses. There will be no blame. There will be no hiding. You will stand before God. But it's not just the family members. See, it won't just be members of the family. Revelation chapter 20 speaks of the great white throne judgment and the dead standing before God. And the Bible says, And whosoever is found, not found written in the book of life will be cast into a lake of fire. We all have an appointment with the judge. You have an appointment with the judge. You have an appointment. You have an appointment. I have an appointment. We all have an appointment where we will stand there by ourselves face to face with God our judge. And once you're standing there, you don't get a do-over. It's a pretty intense thought process, isn't it? If you think sober people up, like considering their future, making sure they're ready for it. That's why in, in witnessing to people, one of the first things I ask is, when you die and you're standing at the gates of heaven, if Jesus, hypothetically, if Jesus was to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? And I know that's a heavy question, but since that's our life's most important moment, there's no more important question. And some of you in here this morning, you're thinking, I don't know what I would say. I'm not prepared for that moment. And let me just encourage you today, if that's the most important moment in your life, and you've never done anything to prepare for it, Jesus Christ died on a cross because you're a sinner. And if you will place your faith in Jesus Christ, receive his payment for your sin, then when you stand before God at judgment, you won't have anything to worry about. Let me just tell you today, if you've never received Christ as your Savior, I want to encourage you at the invitation this morning to have the courage to step out. And come down to the front here and you can speak with me or somebody else that will be down here. And we would show you from the Bible how you can know for sure when you stand before God in judgment that you can have assurance that you don't have to be afraid of it. I know it's a heavy question, but the day of judgment's coming. And can I be frank, honest? It's scary. It's anxiety inducing. Have you ever had an appointment that you just had to be ready for and you dreaded 
If you can remember back into the, your school days, and we've, we've got some that are still in school this morning, you, can you think back to your school days and think when you had a big test that was coming and maybe your whole grade hinged upon whatever grade you get on the test? There's a little bit of anxiety, isn't there? I mean, just a few years ago as an adult, I, I went back and I got my master's degree, and I'm telling you, uh, all the, fl- the flooded memories of of anxiety before you take a test, even as an adult. I'm thinking about it the whole time. They're giving, handing out the test, and I'm sweating. And I, I mean, I, I, it was like sixth grade all over again. I mean, it's scary. You ever had an appointment that you, that you had to be ready for, or a physical exam, or you had to go and get blood work? You ever had to be a witness in a trial? There's anxiety for a big moment. And John knows that. He knows the anxiety that comes when you consider your day of judgment. And our default would probably be terror, except for the truth that John points out here. See, God's track record of love in the past, it gives us confidence that he'll be enough in the future. If God loved you enough to send his son to a cross... If he loves you enough to send his only son to a cross, to die on a cross for your sins, then you can look at whatever is unknown. You can look at whatever is scary in your future. You can look whatever at whatever you don't have answers to. You can look at anything that you're facing and you can say, if he would send his son to a cross for me, that's the kind of love that will be there for me whatever I face. And not only that, if he sent his son to a cross, then you can look at something as unknown and scary as the day of judgment and it not overtake you. God's love record, his past proof, gives us reason not to dread the future. If he died for me, he can handle tomorrow's trial. If he loved me enough to take care of the sins of the entire world, I don't have to worry about how ends are going to meet Next week, God's love for us produces confidence for the future. But it's not just God's love for us that gives us confidence. Verse 17 says, herein is our love made perfect. See, our confidence about the day of judgment, it begins with God's love toward us, but it is confirmed with our love toward others. The two go hand in hand. They're not the same. God loves me, it gives me confidence that he'll continue to love me. But as I look at what God's love does through me, the evidence in my life, that just further confirms my confidence. See, if, I, if, if you have a good reputation as being somebody that will follow through when you're asked to do something, then I have confidence if I ask you to do a favor, then I could assume you're going to do it. I'm going to have confidence based on how faithful you've been in the past. But you know when I would be extremely confident? Once you show up and start doing it. See, it's one thing to have confidence that someone will do it based on their past. But when the evidence finally shows up, then you know, okay, I have very great confidence now that it's going to get finished. That's a similar, pro- the similar thought here is that God's love has been proven. He's given us all the evidence from yesterday that we need to trust him for tomorrow. But our confidence is based not just on what we know of God, but the evidence of love in our own lives. Here's where it gets to be a little bit more tricky. Because as we sang this morning, great is thy faithfulness. 
He's never failed. He's never done anything except be a perfect, holy, providing father for us. The problem comes, the disconnect sometimes comes in how much evidence is in our lives. How much love we are showing. See, our confidence is based on the evidence of love in our lives. Meaning, listen, you will not be confident in your day of judgment if God's love is not evident in your life. And you say, well, I have confidence in in the day of judgment because God loves me. Well, no, according to these verses here, there's further evidence and further confirmation and further assurance that is given based on the evidence of perfect love in your life. Herein is our love made perfect or complete or fulfilled, brought to its end, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. See, the problem with our assurance is never on God's part. He's never failed. His love has always been faithful. The problem with our confidence comes in whether or not we've had evidence of love. If you don't have evidence of love in your life, you will not have boldness about the judgment. The end of love lived out in your life is confidence about the moment when you stand before God. So if, here's the illustration I thought of was if I'm speeding... And I'm not, this is very hypothetical. Okay? Very. If I'm speeding and I see a police officer, what do, what do all of us do? What do you do? You slam on your brakes and act natural. I meant to do that. I meant to be going that fast. Fear, anxiety, the heart races... You're watching your rearview mirror to see if they turn around. You've been there. Well, some of you, the perfect ones haven't. But if you know what? If you're not speeding and you pass a police officer, what do you do? You slam on your brakes and act natural. No. What do you do? Well, I mean, there's a little bit of fear. And maybe you do step on your brakes. But listen, if I'm not speeding and I pass a police officer, there's not much anxiety. There's not much fear. See, that's what we're talking about here in this passage. See, you have anxiety. You have fear about the judgment if you, if you know you haven't been doing right. If you know that in your life there's not evidence of following God. But if you've been doing right, if the evidence is there and you see the judgment coming, the anxiety suddenly fades. See, the word that John uses is boldness. It's the same word found back in chapter 2 when he said, And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. The word confidence and boldness are the same exact word. So we will either, according to 1 John 2, we will either be confident or we'll be ashamed when Jesus Christ returns. Confidence is freedom in speaking. It's not, that means there's nothing to hide. That's what the word means. Confidence means that if you show up, I don't have to slam on my brakes. I have nothing to hide. Everything's fine. I have boldness. I have assurance. I have openness. But ashamed means to disfigure. It means to to hide your true self. It means to be dishonored. It means to shrink back. So those that abide, according to 1 John 2, those that abide in Christ will have boldness. There's nothing to hide when Christ returns. But those that don't will be disfigured. They will shrink away in shame. 
John calls it confidence in the judgment seat in verse 28 of chapter 2. But here in verse 17, he calls it boldness in the day of judgment. It's the same concept. And here it is. John says the key to boldness in the day of judgment is perfected love in us. Love lived out. If we practice love lived out, then we are very much like him. It says, as he is, so are we in the world. The more our love displays Christ's love, our confidence in our position with God is strengthened. Look at all the evidence. That's what he's saying. That's why last week I majored on those who need assurance. You see, a lot of people, when they need assurance, they're looking for a feeling or they're looking for more education or what they could read or knowledge or deeper study. But if we would simply be willing to let go of our natural selfish mindset and let God's love be lived out in us, it would increase our, ins- our assurance according to 1 John chapter 4. Rather than oh, figuring something else out or what, what else do I need to know? No, if you don't have assurance, let God's love be lived out in you. John talks about this far too much for us to just skim over and think, well, assurance doesn't, you know, what we do doesn't really matter. No, the more evidence in your life, the more you will be convinced of your position in Jesus Christ. The evidence of love lived out in our lives gives us boldness so that when we stand before Christ in the judgment seat, we can do it without disfiguring ourselves. We can do it without hiding ourselves. We don't have to shrink back in dishonor We can stand there with boldness. You ever been so prepared for something that you're not even nervous? A test coming up and you think, I've studied so much. I know the material so well. I'm fully confident. And you go in and you still fail. No, you go in. That's usually how it was for me. The more confident I was about a test, the more I'm thinking, how did I get that grade? Have you ever been ready for something, so ready for something that you're not nervous? taking a test or or singing a special at church or teaching a lesson talking to someone about Jesus Christ by the way anybody can do that if you'll practice even in your even on your own if you'll practice how to present the gospel to somebody there's not a person in this room that can't do it practice enough and you'll be ready for it but what i'm saying is the ev- when the evidence of preparation is there You can have confidence going into it. And John is saying that love allows us to look toward the day of judgment with boldness. Not in some arrogant, not in some proud way, but that we have faith. We are assured. Listen, when it comes to salvation, if you're part of the family, you've got nothing to fear. When you stand before God in judgment, if you've received Christ as your Savior, if you've received his payment for your sins, you can rest assured that you will stand before God and he won't see your sin. Rather, he'll see your son, his son. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For he hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You realize if you're saved, if you're a child of God, no matter all the sins that you've ever done in your whole life, when you stand before God at the judgment seat, he will, when he looks at your life, he doesn't see the countless long list of all the failures and all the sins and all the things that weighed you down your whole life. If you've received Christ's payment for your sin, when, G, when God looks at us in judgment, he'll only see the applied payment of his son's blood on our behalf. Jesus Christ's righteousness. 
Christ's payment for your sin is all you need to stand before God, the judge, with confidence. Your perspective on the future changed the day that you received Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you have evidence of love in your life, you've got double confidence. God's love towards you provides great confidence in the future, and God's love through you toward others does as well. See, the presence of love means we don't have a reason to be afraid when he comes. And that thought leads to verse 18. Look, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. I mean, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. See, perfected love in us eliminates fear. It eliminates fear. This is very similar to verse 17, except it's stated in the negative. Whereas in verse 17, perfected love from God and toward others produces confidence. A lack of love would produce fear. Fear and torment are the opposite of love. Fear and love are mutually exclusive. He says there's no fear in love. Perfect love casteth out fear. And that word casteth means to throw or let go of a thing without caring how it falls. And I brought my fishing pole today. I'm going to go ahead and switch back to this. We'll see how it works. Just last week, we went to the men's camp out. My son and I, I took him. He's six years old. And we had a fishing pole, but in the move, I think it's somewhere in Kansas because we couldn't find it once we got here. So we went and bought him a new fishing pole, and, you know, I rigged it up, and, and we were, I was trying to teach him how to cast. And, you know, at first, you know, when you're young and a little immature, and you don't have all of your coordination yet, when you try to cast it, man, it was going all over the place. I mean, it ended up in trees, it ended up behind them a few times, I don't even know how it happened, but... I mean, he, the, the casting was not very good. And, you know, I'm not a great fisherman. I don't necessarily, I, I'm not successful at fishing. I'll say it that way. I'll go, but I'm not, just not very good at it. But I've done it long enough to, and I'm not going to cast this, just so you folks on the front row. I've done it long enough, and there's enough evidence in my life that that when I cast, I can pretty much take it right where I want it to be. But see, when you're young and you're a little immature and you're maybe a little bit uncoordinated and you haven't done it very much, there's not much evidence that you fish very much. But the longer you fish, the better you get at casting it, the more you can basically make it go right where you want it to go. And it reminded me of this word here, when he says, perfect love casteth out fear. See, the word casteth means to throw or let go of a thing without caring how it falls. You're just going to throw it out there. You know, the longer that I'm saved, um, the more that I have evidence in my life, the more that, that God's love has worked in me and been perfected in me and been fulfilled in me. It seems like these days, very often, if I just based on maturity and based on my walk with the Lord, I can almost just, for the most part, I have lots of confidence. Confidence in my position. 
I'm not saying that it's always perfect. It's definitely not perfect. But there's enough maturity there that the evidence is strong and have boldness in my position. But listen, when you're not mature and you're, and you're trying to cast out fear, there's not much evidence that, that love has been working. It's, it, you haven't done it very much. And what John is saying is that the more mature, the more that you work, the more that you practice love lived out, the, the more that the love can cast out the fear. The more that the, the fear is no longer part of the daily life. And the problem, you see, when, you're, when you haven't been saved very much and you're not sure about the evidence, there's some doubt. But the longer you let God work in your life, the more His love does work, the, the less fearful you are, the more confident you are. If fear is present, it's an indicator of a lack of love. Love and fear are opposite. If this is love, love wants all as much as it can. Love wants to cast fear out. It wants no part of it. See, when John says that love gives you boldness about the judgment, the opposite must also be true. See, if love is missing, you'll be afraid of the judgment. And you're trying to cast it out and there's not much evidence and you're not really love lived out very much. And so you can't really cast out the fear. The fear is there and, and it's present and you're afraid. And instead of standing with boldness with nothing to hide, we shrink in shame. Like the student who's not ready for the test. Like the criminal who knows he's guilty before sentencing. This word for fear comes from the Greek word phobos, P-H-O-B-O-S, from which we get the word phobia. It means that which strikes terror. So John is saying that the absence of love strikes terror into our hearts. You know, we know that to be true. When love is missing, it's a, it creates a culture of fear. You ever worked in an environment like that? You ever worked in an environment that was a culture of fear? Or you've been a part of something that was a culture of fear? There's not a culture of love or respect and and service and a team mentality. Instead, there's some heavy-handed boss. A heavy-handed dictator who comes down hard on every mistake or any question. There's no love. There's no humility. There's just mean-spirited anger. It's a culture of fear. You know, in that situation, people can't help but be afraid. I mean, they want to cast out the fear, and, but, but because there's no love, they just have to hold on to it. They know every mistake will be punished. Every error puts their job in the line. It puts them at risk for public humiliation. And you say, well, that's a tough place to work. When there's no love, it creates fear. Uh, you've been in, I'm sure you've been in that environment. You see that environment. Maybe you were raised in a family where that environment was present. I've seen that situation in families. You know, fathers, we have an opportunity to be gentle and patient when dealing with our wives and children. We lead and we direct and we even confront. But if we do it the right way, they know that we love them. There's not a culture of fear. But I've seen plenty of heavy-handed dads who kind of strike fear into their family. They say, I'm the head of this household. What I say goes... You better do what I say. And what we do in that situation is we create a culture of fear with our wife, with our children. And, and the natural love that should be lived out, boy, it's stifled. The Bible says it's torment. 
It's similar to the, maybe, you know, dads, you can do it with a, you can confront. You can help your children along. You can talk to them. But, but we need to do it with a sense of humility and love. It's similar to the principle I preached a few weeks ago that love accepts you where you are but refuses to let you stay there. See, that's a big mindset. Can I just, just clear off a little spot here? That's a big mindset in my approach to pastoring. See, I know that people are at different levels and stages of maturity and, and I want to be patient and gentle and helpful. People need room to grow. But there are times when people need a loving push or a challenge to rise to the occasion it's not about being mean or impatient. The love God has given me as a pastor about, toward you drives me to want to help you become all that you should be for Jesus Christ. I accept you where you are, but I don't just want you to stay there. I want to see you rise to new heights. I want to see you take steps toward being like Christ. That's a healthy mindset. But listen, if a pastor in a church ever turns it into a culture of fear, it's all wrong. There's no love being expressed. Those who should be serving are doing it because they're afraid. That's the last environment I want here. It should be a culture of love here. And it drives us to progress in our Christian lives. It's not threats. It's not punishment. No one can act with confidence or boldness if they're always afraid of being punished. With God, his love toward us. And the love it produces in us is all the evidence we need to know we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear because God loves us. And if he loves us, he will only seek our best. So we don't have to be afraid of circumstances we face. Perfect love casteth out fear. Nothing to fear because if God produces love in us, that means we have fully realized or lived out his purpose for our lives in our love, which means We've got nothing to fear in judgment. We don't have any reason to slam on the brakes. Perfect love casteth out fear. There's nothing to fear because true love is present. Perfect love casteth out fear. Listen, if you live a life of fear before God, it means one of two things. One, either you've lost sight of the fact that God loves you immensely and he wants the best for your life in his glory. Or two, you have yet to fully experience what his love can do through you. You're not living a life that daily exhibits love toward others. You don't have love lived out. So is your Christian life characterized by fear? If you look at your life, is it, are you driven by fear? Are you driven by being afraid of standing before God and you just know he's going to get you? you? You know you're caught. See, if, if that's the case, if you're driven by fear, that indicates that you're missing the element of love. Because love and fear are opposites. But Matthew 22, in speaking about our whole, the whole summary of our Christian life, says, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It does not say, thou shalt be afraid of the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Yet I believe there are plenty of Christians that fear God in the sense of terror. 
because either they've forgotten about how much he loves them or their life isn't giving very much evidence of love. God is not a dictator. He operates toward us from a perspective of love. He wants what's best for your life. If you don't believe it, look at the cross. He sacrificed his son so we could have it, the best life. He's not looking for to step on us. He's not looking to keep us down. He's looking to elevate us into the image of his son. He's not a God of misery. He's a God of hope. And if your Christian life is characterized by fear and anxiety and tension and worry, then you have missed what this is all about. God's motivator is love. And yours should be too. Let love do its work in you. Both God's love toward you and then God's love through you. See, without love, you'll be full of fear. But with love, fear is cast out. You want to live with no fear? Don't go truck surfing. Don't go get a prescription. It's not about the power of positive thinking. If you want to live with no fear, embrace God's love to you. And then express God's love through you. And let love cast out fear. Let's all stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.